If you're interested in a career that might be focused on research, it's important to go after a problem. Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali. And you're listening to Pete Zamet. Alice, today is a fan's dream come true of sorts, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a really big day for me. Um, it, this is, I think, the most excited I've ever been about a guest or a meeting. <laughs> yeah, who are, tell us more about who we're talking to today. Yeah, so today we're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Matsui. She is a an asthma researcher. She used to be faculty at Johns Hopkins, and now she works at Dell Children's Hospital in Austin, Texas. She has run so many large asthma-focused research projects and brought so much grant money into the institution to fund those projects. And so in terms of careers that are just like amazing and incredible to, to ask about and to think about hers, she's really at the top of the mountain. Yeah. That's amazing. I feel like whenever I hear about these biosketches of these amazing researchers, including Dr. Matsui, I am both completely awestruck by how much have they done and then also just, you know, intimidated by thinking about how, like, we as trainees can even come close to having a career like that. Um, and so I just, I'm just so excited that we're going to be talking to her today and I can't wait to hear from her. Let's get started. We are here today with Dr. Elizabeth Matsui. Uh, Dr. Matsui went to medical school at Vanderbilt University and did her pediatric residency at UCSF. During her clinical practice after residency, she recognized the immense importance of what I think is the most important research question of pediatrics, which is how do we prevent this severe asthma? She did allergy and immunology fellowship at Johns Hopkins University um, and then joined the faculty, bringing just so much grant money and R01 or R01 funding to the institution and then transferred her career to Dell Children's in Austin, Texas. Um, in addition to running these large research programs, Dr. Vitsui is the host of The Effort Report, a podcast of academia that we highly recommend. And we're going to talk about shaping a career in pediatric subspecialty research. Dr. Vitsui, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here, particularly because there's a pediatric-focused audience um, and I think there's so much great opportunity for pediatricians um, in terms of thinking about a career in academic medicine. We agree. So I love the way that you talk about shaping a research idea and sort of the thought process that goes into that. So how did I do with your bio? Anything that you think that I should we should add or clarify? I think that's on target. Along the way, I did get a master's in health sciences of in epidemiology mm -hmm. at the School of Public Health at Hopkins. And I only note that because it was really critical to my research career, mm. that additional kind of training and education. It's sort of like the difference between a, a practicing pediatrician who wants to just shout about their patient population from the rooftop and someone who can really generate generalizable results, right? Yeah. And I can, I mean, I'm happy to talk more about kind of what that degree and training did for me, mm -hmm. but I think to be sort of as succinct as possible, it gives you the tools that you need to think about how to shape an, a research idea that you have into a really impactful question and how to design a study to really answer that question in, in an impactful way. Mm. And medical training doesn't really do that. It does lots of other very important things for you, but it that's not really 
what medical training is designed to do. Mm-hmm. And in medical training, you think about the individual patient in front of you. And when you start to do research, you think about populations. And it's a different kind of way of thinking. Oh, yeah. And did you, you did that separate from your fellowship training or sort of in the middle of your fellowship training? Or was there like a... At the, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so my mentor, who was Peyton Eggleston, very much wanted me to do it, wanted me to do it. And um, so I applied and I think I finished my fellowship in 2003 and was had done much of the degree work and then was awarded the degree in 2004. Oh, nice. And so you, you sort of... I combined it with fellowship. Mm-hmm. but um, And there are places in the country where you can do that, but they tend to be places with pretty prominent schools of public health where there's sort of a known kind of arrangement and relationship between the school of medicine. And so the school of public health at Hopkins is very much used to having MD trainees engage in, in um, education on educational activities like master's degrees in the school of public health. And so there's a path, a well-worn path for doing that. So you sort of had seen, or when you were in fellowship, there were people who had done it before. It wasn't something that you were creating from scratch. Exactly. And so nobody in allergy immunology had done that before, but um, people in other subspecialties that I had worked with had done that before. Like in in particular in adult pulmonology, there is a large sort of longstanding track record of people getting degrees in the school of public health as a part of their career development. Mm. And you, did you enter fellowship sort of knowing that this was the ideal trajectory or goal or sort of most impactful way that you thought of spending your career? Um, yes and no. So I think typically what happens when you're a resident is, and obviously this is not true of every single person, mm-hmm. um, so there are caveats to generalizing, but you are um, exposed to certain subspecialties and it's you become attracted to a subspecialty because of the clinical experience that you have and most people will pick a subspecialty because of that clinical experience and i went and did a fellowship not because of a clinical experience but because i had sort of identified this problem that bothered me and it, it and i realized and and partly was convinced by the person who had become my mentor that if I was really going to be able to understand the problem better and intervene upon it, I was going to need additional training. Mm. And so the exam, so I have a sort of meandering tail between residency and fellowship. So it was about four and a half years between when I finished my pediatric residency and when I started my fellowship. So I didn't go directly from one to the other. Mm-hmm. And as is true, I think to this day, because Pediatric allergy is pretty small field. It's very outpatient oriented. Pediatric training um, does not mandate that people experience any pediatric allergy. And so I didn't have any pediatric allergy experience clinically. And I loved critical care and hemoc. And you don't want me anywhere near a very sick patient now, but I was really good at it too at the time. And I thought I wanted to do a pediatric hemonc fellowship. And my to-be husband was a medical student when I was a resident, and he matched in internal medicine at University of Washington in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of not on the same kind of timeline in terms of training. 
And so what I did was when I finished my residency, I said, well, I'm going to go work in Seattle and I'll work in an oncology lab and then do some moonlighting and then we'll apply to fellowships together at the same time. And he was interested in adult oncology. So I moved to Seattle. And at that point in time, you applied more than 18 months ahead of time before fellowship. Mm -hmm. And so I had was working in a lab and doing some moonlighting and applied for HEMOC fellowships, you know, after I'd been in the lab for a few months. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't really wild about the first few months, but I thought, well, you know, it's just the first few months, you know, maybe it'll get better. Um, And we both got offered spots and accepted at Hopkins. So he did an adult ONC fellowship and I was going to do a pediatric HEMOC fellowship. And it became clear that I hated the lab, Mm. hated it. And so I thought, well, I really want to do something that feels more proximal to, you know, to patients. And in oncology, there's a lot of very important clinical research that's done, but appropriately so it's managed by a central national group. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that the pediatric, there were a couple of them back then and they merged. So I don't remember the name of them now, but I think it's like pediatric oncology group. Mm-hmm. And so when you do oncology clinical research, particularly if you're, if you haven't sort of climbed up the administrative ladder to sit on the national committee, that decides what studies are going to be done, you serve as sort of like a site study coordinator. Mm. And I didn't want that. I don't, I want to decide what questions I want to ask. Mm. And so I made the decision to bail out a fellowship. And at the time it was, it's not a cool thing to do for sure, Mm -hmm. but it was very much viewed as, you know, horrifying that I did this. I called the program director at Hopkins with a screaming, colicky six-week-old, oh who's now 23, um, screaming in the background as I bailed out of my fellowship. And so I bailed out of it and we moved to Baltimore. So my husband started his oncology fellowship and he had to work with the PEDS program director who I had called and bailed out on. And so I needed um, you know, to figure out what I wanted to do. Right. And then you also got that job at a sort of like a school asthma clinic or something, right? And you collected your own pulmonary function test data? Yeah, and I had this data to try to understand what was going on. And then I approached the person in the pediatric allergy immunology division who had become my fellowship mentor and said, I have this data, I don't know what to do. And he said, "Um, you really need to come do a fellowship. Like if your desire is to study this and try to improve this problem, you need more training. Wow. Um, and so, and initially I was like, ah, I'm going to have another child now. I don't think it's a good time. But eventually then I did do a fellowship and then he was the one that convinced me to get the master's in epidemiology. And so I, and the, it's a long winded story, but I think the point of it is, is there are a couple points. One is that you only know what you're exposed to and the residency experience is really important for clinical training, but it's a pretty, there's selection bias there mm-hmm. to use an epi mm-hmm. term in terms of what you are exposed to and what you might encounter and think of pursuing. And then I think the second thing is, is if you're interested in a career that might be, have a good part of it that's focused on research, it's important, I think, to go after a problem and to be driven to solve a problem, because that's really what drives kind of the development of research questions. And, and I think will keep you going because it's, you know, it's, gets tedious and it takes a long time for results to come in from studies. And 
having something that you feel really passionate about like that, I think can be helpful. Wow. That's, that's so amazing that you had this lo- like population study. You're like, we've done a community intervention. We've, we have all of these data and that's how you approached the initial contact with the program director. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you're, you're exaggerating a little bit. I didn't have like tons and tons of data. I had, you know, <laughs> t- t- tens of kids, not hundreds of kids you know, who I had lung function on, but I was collecting data and not posing a research question. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I'll ask people like, what really makes you angry? Like when you're Mm -hmm. in clinic or, and what, and for some people it's sort of like, it depends on your temperament. For me, it's like, what makes me angry? Because I'm going to go solve it. You know, Mm -hmm. for other people, it's like, what are you inspired to, to contribute? And what problem are you inspired to solve? That's so, resonates so deeply, especially the the idea that picking a fellowship, if if you want to be, if this is like what really excites you and you want to go into academia, picking a fellowship based on the research opportunities and not just the fact that it's really fun to be in the unit and things like that. Right, right. And it was an accident for me. It wasn't any wisdom. It was because I went to the lab and I hated it and I was a disaster in the lab. And, you know, it wasn't anything that I deliberately understood. But in retrospect, that's sort of, you know, what helped me figure out like what it was that I was excited about doing. Mm. I think the project that I've like spent all this time on is the weaning of methadone after a prolonged intubation. And every once in a while, someone will just mention an upstream like preventative measure at, at one of our meetings about, well, you know, like, if not that many kids got bronchiolitis, then we wouldn't have this issue. And so I think that thinking about myself like 25 years from now, trying to convince the NIH to give me money to wean methadone faster is not like that's just not where the money should go. <laughs> or maybe, but maybe I shouldn't say that. But yeah, I think you I think you need I mean, I think I would frame it as you need those sorts of interventions now. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't only focus on, for example, weaning methadone without also understanding prevention, but it takes a long time to affect change in terms of prevention. Mm -hmm. So we need we need both. I think the problem with the way money is allocated, though, is the vast majority of it goes to treatment of downstream effects Mm -hmm. of, you know, these other. And so the problem is, is I think it needs to be allocated in a different way, but, but not, not in a way where we don't, you know, understand how to care for existing disease clinically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sort of the argument for pediatric research in general, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Something that I really like, or I think that this is sort of tangential to the idea of choosing a career based on the clinical care. As residents, especially as senior residents, we're really proud of being decisive and efficient and getting to the correct answer correctly and knowing the knowing the guidelines and applying them. And I think that there's such a difference probably in thought process between that and academic medicine. How would you how would you sort of describe that as you think about developing a research question and really like taking the time to to write and things like that? So I'll describe a scenario which I think illustrates the difference. So if someone is first learning how to do research and we're developing a research question and let's say we have a study design, they may come to me and say, well, how am I supposed to measure X, like stress or, you know, fill in the blank with anything? And I'll say, I don't know. Have you sort of investigated all the different ways to do it and the pros and cons? And oftentimes people are taken aback because they're expecting 
that there's an answer that is the correct answer mm-hmm. and there's not. And so medical training, and I'm going to sound like this old grouchy person here, but emphasizes knowing what the guidelines are. And because of that, it doesn't reward challenging the guidelines. There's mm-hmm. all sorts of uncertainty behind the guidelines. Mm-hmm. So people who come out of medical training sort of think, well, this is the correct answer because the guidelines say it's a correct answer. Well, guidelines change over time because people challenge those things. Mm-hmm. And so there's this default thinking in terms of clinical training or people who've recently undergone clinical training. And it's it's a good one, you know, because that's how you make sure you take good care of patients. You want to know what the guidelines are. But there's a default thinking that this is the answer. Like, I don't, I don't even know, like, where the workup for, you know, a fever and a newborn is now, like the age of when you had to admit kids kept going mm-hmm. on younger. But that's changed dramatically over time. Who needs an LP, et cetera? And if you're trained to think, well, what's the right thing to do? And the right thing to do is what's written in the guidelines. You're never trained to question the guidelines. You're trained to assume that someone knows the answer. So trainees who are starting to do research come to me. And they'll say, well, how am I supposed to do this? And I'm like, well, we're going to figure it out. And it's kind of um, unsettling. Mm -hmm. But that's what research is, is it's about challenging what people think might be the case, you know, with evidence behind Mm -hmm. it. You don't, Mm -hmm. you're not just trying to like trash something without any rationale for doing that. I don't know if that makes sense at all or or really answered your question. No, I think. I think it does, especially the idea that there isn't one way to just do something as you're cranking out a project, right? It's not like, oh, how do we, what what screening tool do we apply? Okay, it's done. You need to process it and put it together and like really, really know all the background to the screening tool you're applying or things like that. Well, not only that, which screening tool and is it appropriate for the question that you're asking? Mm-hmm. And because just even thinking about that one question, there's a lot to think about. What advice do you have when for tradies that are sort of like writing up their work for the first time or putting together a proposal for a first time or, or things like that? Do you see common pitfalls that people run into? And Yeah. So if you're writing a piece of scholarly work, the first thing you want is a mentor who will essentially kind of co-write it with you. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that they lead it at all. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is, is in this I mean, this doesn't apply to everybody, but it's a recipe that has tended to work well, which is I meet with someone for an hour every week and they send me something at least several days before our next meeting that I get to review. I mark it up with track changes. We discuss it. They use that very same document to sort of refine things and answer my kind of comments because... When you write something, it's an activity that is a tool for thinking through something. And it's hard to do that without sort of a sounding board or person who says, well, what do you mean by that? Or this isn't logical. There's a something not right here. And I unfortunately think that it's not very scalable, but that sort of apprenticeship model is the model that works the best. But you need a mentor who has that time and a mentor who has successfully kind of written things, you know, has a track record of mm. of um, success in terms of writing up scholarly work. Mm. 
The other piece of advice that I have, and this is how I write, is I'm very fixated on the underlying logic. And so I create bullets that are intended to be not just individual ideas, but they are a linear path of logic. And I don't really care when I first put it down on paper, like if I'm using elegant words or I'm communicating it really well, it's just to establish the logical structure of things. Mm. I'll also break things down into small bites. Mm -hmm. So if it's a paper, the introduction's typically maybe 250 to 300 words, we'll work on the introduction first and wait until that's sort of fleshed out. Mm. Nice. And so sort of taking one piece of the paper at a time and having bullet points. And then you sort of like, you like will put all of your sort of citations in there and sort of the evidence to back up each idea and then, and flush it out into prose. Yeah. And I, um, I am not at all recommending this. I do that after the fact. Mm. And the reason I do that after the fact is because when you've been in a field for so long, you have enough of a sense of it that you have all, you have, sort of this idea that uh, of what the literature is out there. Now, you know, when you're first getting into a field, that's it's really hard to, to do it that way. Mm-hmm. But what you may want to do is actually read a lot of literature before you sit down and write rather than trying to write and read literature while you're writing. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. You need to spend, you're either an expert in the field or you need to spend days and weeks reading every single paper you can find about something, right? And, and then, Yeah, but that alone, actually, I just, we just talked about this. I, so my co-host on the Effort Report is Roger Ping, who's a biostatistician and has been a collaborator and friend of mine for a long time. We just talked about this on a recent episode that you can't actually, you can know a little bit of the field by reading the literature. And there are two reasons why that is. What's in the literature was what people in the field were thinking about two years ago. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not in the field and you can't, you're not having conversations with people and going to meetings with people and collaborating with people, you actually don't really have your finger on the pulse, even when you, even if you could read the entire literature. And then the second thing is, is there are aspects of a field that are not explicitly reflected in the literature that are not necessarily like what's the cutting edge ideas or set of ideas that people are thinking about, but their rules of thumbs or um, frameworks of how people think about things that may be like in my world where I work with a lot of card carrying environmental health scientists there. I haven't taken any environmental health science courses mm-hmm. in, and you could read a bunch of papers related to environmental health sciences, but unless you took some courses or you were in the field, you wouldn't understand what the basic principles were. Mm-hmm. And then that gets you in trouble too. And so you can't just read the literature. You actually have to work with someone who's an expert as well. Mm. or And then eventually you become the expert that's in the field and connected to everyone. Yes. Even yeah. you know, what they're going to do. Because you'll right. know it if you were part of the study section. <laughs> like right. exactly what their plan was. Right. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, okay. Marching down the career path from, okay, I'm, I have this research question or I'm excited to be part of this project and, and trying to like, fit in that environment. Fellowship training in pediatrics with or without a master's, although I really appreciate the value of having formal training outside of your MD and, and sort of whatever degree you got before that. 
that's sort of the classic research training for a pediatrician, right? The fellowship. So there are different there are different kinds of models for having a position in academia as a physician. And so one model is kind of a more of a clinician educator model. And you may play some supportive role in research. And you may write up case series or case reports or so on and so forth. So it's not that research isn't a part of what you're doing, but it's a different kind of research and it takes up sort of a smaller part of your time. Mm. And then there's in between, but then there's all the way at the other end where you want to be the one to do, to pose the questions. But then that means you have to get the grant funding and then you have to execute the study. And to do that and be competitive for kind of funding, my belief is, is you need extra formal research training like a master's degree. Because my grants are competing with someone who's a PhD epidemiologist and has done a postdoc and so on and so forth. Right. And has had all these years of exclusive specific research right, training. Right, right, right. So they have as much research training as I have medical training. Yes. They just Right. And then so in order to sort of be on track to be someone who's going to be writing these R01 grants and asking these big questions, sort of going for a very academic focused fellowship where you can look at people who have graduated from that fellowship and sort of done something similar, as well as aggressively pursuing the formal training. Right. And getting the papers, right? Yeah. Well, and there's something in between. I think I'm a bit of maybe an extreme. Mm -hmm. So um, there are lots of examples of people who either do like pharma-sponsored trials. So in certain fields, many fields, even in allergy and asthma, you can be a researcher and you're the site PI for pharma-sponsored trials. Mm. There are also non-industry-sponsored kind of networks. So there's like, you know, a maternal fetal medicine network that's funded by NIH and they develop and execute studies related to management of, you know, labor and delivery and high-risk births and so on and so forth. There are asthma networks, but they're not, they're not necessarily drug trials. Mm-hmm. And there you, you know, having some additional formal research training is helpful, but is not necessary. And the way people typically get their foot in the door is they train at a place that is a site for one of these networks. Mm-hmm. So then they become the site PI. Oh, okay. So they, they're sort of connecting, in a way, connecting patients with um, with the ideas because they're the clinician and, and sort of things like that. Yeah, and it's not, I mean, they participate in the idea generation, but that's not someone who necessarily is writing an R, R01, mm-hmm. but yet they're, they are funding from external sur- sources to do research. Gotcha. So that's... That, that makes a lot of sense, like, of, of course, but you're right that I think about it in the extremes, like this person is is doing this and then, right. and right. then there's clinical medicine, and that is what I've seen. <laughs> Do you have a way that you think about or describe sort of the, the natural progression of, if we were going to look at the one extreme, the natural progression of sort of training grants or the NIH pathway, I um, we joke that I... I feel like I'm still kind of trying to figure out exactly what a T32 is mm-hmm. and, and a K grant and things like that and, and how people get from one to the other and... Um, and who does and things like that. Right, right. So a T32 is not a grant to an individual. It's a mm-hmm. grant to a training program. Mm-hmm. And so I'll just use my 
old division as an example, the pediatric allergy immunology division, definitely now more than 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, Mm -hmm. the division chief applied for a T32 to NIAID, one of the NIH institutes. The grant got funded. And so the division gets funding to support, it's a salary for a certain number of fellows per year for a certain, you know, number. And then Mm. five years later, you have to submit it again and ask, you basically are applying again and your previous track record is looked at. And a big determinant of whether you get refunded each time is the track record of of your trainees because it's coming from NIH. It's intended to fund researchers. So they're looking at how many papers the fellows have published and what kind of positions the fellows are in. Mm -hmm. Are they, you know, mostly going into practice or are they mostly getting faculty appointments and so on and so forth. And so it's not that I applied to be, have a T32 slot. It was at the fellowship program. That's how they funded and paid fellows. And there's no other real fellowship funding of, of, you know, any major substance, although there are a couple of actually small pots of money. But by and large, when I was there, that was the that was how fellow spots were paid for fellow salary. There's a little bit of like travel. So you can go to a meeting and present work and some supplies. You can buy a computer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's because we did not make money clinically. If you go into a fellowship like, I'll use oncology because my husband's an oncologist where there's lots of clinical revenue, there may be a T32 that covers two slots a year, but there may be six fellows a year. Mm. And so in that case, they often then internally decide who gets the T32 slot. And some of them have an application process, but the idea is they want to put someone on the T32 who's headed down a research path because they are also going to have to submit their T32 for a competitive renewal to see whether it'll get refunded or not. Mm -hmm. And so you want to put the candidates on there that are going to be provide evidence that your training program is meeting the objective of this T32. Mm -hmm. So sort of like applying for a fellowship, an extra fellow for the ACGME and it's this spot and you're held accountable for creating a researcher like, putting people up. On the yeah. And, and obviously not everyone goes into research. So it's not, it's not as cut and dry as that, but you as a, a division or whoever's a training program director, the T32 PI describes what all the graduates have done, describes the research they've done, describes the environment for training, describes the curriculum for mm-hmm. training. We have a journal club, we have this, we have that, mm. but a huge, what's weighted a lot is the track record of where the trainees end up when they're mm-hmm. when they're done. And mm-hmm. so a lot of the T32 business is especially opaque to trainees because you're you're not applying for a T30, you're applying for a fellowship. Right. And probably if if in critical care, it's an intense clinical year the first year, mm-hmm. that's not funded by a T32. Mm-hmm. If that program has a T32, then the T32 will support like the year after the heavy clinical year or the mm-hmm. two years after the heavy clinical year. Mm-hmm. And whether it supports everybody or not just depends on, you know, maybe they take six fellows to cover the clinical load, but the T32 really only covers two spots. That makes sense. And I think that that's consistent with sort of what I've seen. Like we said, we have these two spots, these two people who joined X person's lab will continue. Right, right. How do you describe 
I'm wondering how you would describe a K grant to, to like a new pediatric resident, um, or what what does that mean? Who who wants them? Who ends up with them? How what are you going to use them for? So that's an NIH grant, and mm-hmm. so the NIH is the National Institutes of Health, and so that's a federal arm of the federal government that you know, and I like they fund the T32. So the mission is they're going to use public dollars, because this is a public good, to support the development of clinician scientists. Mm -hmm. Now, they're K awards for PhDs, too, but Mm -hmm. we'll just talk about clinician scientists. And so that money is appropriated, and within an NIH, NIH is for National Institutes of Health. There are many different institutes. And so NIAID, which is all in the news now because of coronavirus, is the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And so the T32 at the Hopkins Pediatric Allergy Division is funded through NIAID. NHLBI funds, you know, would fund pulmonary T32s mm-hmm. and maybe critical care T32s. I don't mm-hmm. know. But mm-hmm. so there are many different institutes, but they also fund Ks. And so a K is a career development award or grant. And what that means is, is, it's targeted to someone who has some momentum and demonstrated some promise in terms of a research career, but they can't compete for a big multi-million dollar grant on their own, which is like an, an RO1, which you were talking about. Yeah. Like they're not going to be able to be competitive because they haven't had, and this again goes back to the fact that people who go down a PhD path, remember, have the same amount of research training as you have medical training. Yes. And you may complete a fellowship and have spent six months doing research when they've spent six years getting a PhD and another three years in a postdoc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this K award or grant is not just proposing a research project, that's part of it. It's actually proposing a career development plan. And, and essentially what you might say is I've, and you need to kind of have a faculty appointment in order to be eligible. And so what you may, might say is, you know, I completed my critical care fellowship last year. I'm on my first year in the faculty. I published these two or three papers, you know, whatever you mm-hmm. think the big problem is. And you've published these couple of papers that sort of start to hint, you know, that there's some issue there or question that or problem that you really want to solve. And you have a track record of publishing. You're judged on your mentor. You have a mentor who has independent RO1 type funding and has a track record of having successfully mentored people through a K award and into independence, into their own RO1 mm-hmm. in a field that they have expertise enough to support you, but you're not just doing the same thing that they would do. You have the opportunity mm-hmm. to distinguish yourself. So you have this whole mentorship plan. You have a career development plan. And like in that scenario, maybe you need to learn how to do survival analyses mm-hmm. and use R or Stata or mm-hmm. that you need to understand more about the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of particular drugs You know, you're studying that you think prolong time on vent. And so you're going to take some some pharmacology classes and one of your co-mentors is going to be somebody with expertise in opiates or what have you. And so you're putting together a whole package that describes over the next five years, under the five years of funding, you're going to have a project that you do that's going to provide you experiential learning. 
Mm-hmm. You're going to have a career development plan where you're going to take some classes. You're going to have mentorship in these gaps in your skill set. And then you're going to have like a mentorship plan as well. And so you're judged on your promise as a candidate, as well as sort of your mentors in your career development plan, and then also the project. Whereas mm-hmm. when you write an R01, it's just all about the project that you're doing. Gotcha. So it's funding the person's career rather than the specific research question. Right, right. And it's funding the development of their career. And so what what a study section or a review panel is looking for are all the right ingredients here for this person to be competitive for independent funding towards the end of the, you know, so you have to have publications. You mm-hmm. can't be oh, competitive for a K. Yeah. Your environment, your mentorship, your career development plan, and is the project going to be of value Mm-hmm. So that you're going to be able to build on it, or is it look like there's a risk that it's a dead end project where it's high risk and the answer is likely to not be of interest, and then you're not going to have your next question to kind of build on. Oh, that's so that's so valuable, and it's also because I don't think of my attendings who I think the mean age is like like 37 or something for a K award that I read, and I don't think about those people who are have been practicing for all this time as having mentors. The mentorship process sort of becomes opaque after you graduate your training. You're like, oh, why would you need a mentor? You're an attending physician, you know? The grants get rated on the strength of the mentors. Wow. Yep. Someone will say to me like, oh, well, she's working with, you know, this much more senior person. And it's like, well, I, I how dare I? Like, I would never have assumed that because she's doing her own work. And so that's, it's just so interesting. Yeah kind of wrestling, the cognitive wrestling. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost impossible. I mean, I'm I'm sure there are people who could do it. Most of the time, cognitive wrestling is much more effective when you're doing it with someone. I mean, not they're not tied to your hip or anything, but because you're having to learn something new. And so you need an expert. And so that sort of this concept of, Mm -hmm. well, I don't need a mentor anymore it never goes away. It's just maybe you call it something else. So I'm having to learn mm-hmm. not to the point where I can do it because I'm not going to be able to do it, but I've sort of delved into kind of spatial statistics and I knew nothing about spatial statistics, but it was it's a critical tool to the kind of the research questions I'm trying to ask now. And so I have a collaborator, you know, who is, you know, really good at this stuff, who's a biostatistician and so he helps me learn it. So that whole idea of like, you never stop learning and, you know, you never stop kind of needing experts around you. It's mm-hmm. just that I'm able to direct what I need from him. I, you know, once you get to be yeah. more senior, whereas when you're more junior, you don't, you have no idea. You don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So you need someone to be more directive. When you get, get to my stage, there's a lot you don't know, but you have a better idea about what it is that you don't know. So you yourself can be more directive on your own, in terms of your own needs for collaboration and expertise and learning. Oh, absolutely. And that also makes the whole thing kind of more appealing because doing something when you're, when you're by yourself is so much less fun. And Approaching fellowship, like I have to learn everything about asking research questions and developing them because after that, it's just me trying to. So, oh, no. It's, really yeah. Bad. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. 
And some people don't like that thing because it can be painful. You know, I'm like writing a grant or something and it's really bugging me. So I go to bed like perseverating about it. And then I wake up and I think, oh, what about this? You know, in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. And and I I don't love it all the time. Sometimes it's torture. It's like, well, I just want to do this. I don't like I don't want to have to learn because it's hurting my brain. But you have to Mm -hmm. be okay with that to kind of pursue Mm -hmm. one with my grant or this, that or the other. But ultimately... I would rather do that because I also like to have autonomy. So you have more autonomy. You don't need, you're not a cog in a wheel. Yeah. And it's not, it is not at all to sit. Clinicians are not necessarily cogs and wheels, but they, (laughs) you, you have less self-determination in terms of like how you spend your, your time. And so the flip side of, you know, writing grants and being responsible for kind of fundraising for your work, um, which gives you a lot of autonomy. I, determine how and when and where I work and under what circumstances. But then there's this other level of responsibility that's added to it. And you can't, you can't have complete autonomy and no extra sort of stress about, you know, I have to raise fundraise because I have five people working for me. And if I can't get the grants, they lose their jobs and I can't do the studies and whatever. So you're basically trading if if autonomy and self-determination is really important to you, then it is worth that extra stress. Mm-hmm. But if you that's too stressful and it's less important to you and you would rather sort of know what to expect on a day-to-day basis and not worry about where your paycheck's coming from, then this path is not a good not a good path. Mm-hmm. If I could just get sort of the the quick definition of an R01 or an R01, then I think that I think that the logical sort of meat of this is the K grant because it's, um, you know, because you need to go through it. And, and then by the end, you're sort of logically thinking about an R01. Over the next five years to do this study. Mm-hmm. Peers review it. And then, you know, maybe 10% of them get funded. Um, and then you are given the money to do what you propose to do. I don't know if that helps, but that does help. I think especially parsing the difference and yeah, and sort of thinking about this is the big thing. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I can't emphasize enough how much I appreciate the fact that you're willing to do this. Oh, I this is like at the end of the day, I'm a pediatrician. And um, we need more pediatricians pursuing this career path. And in particular, because all of the health issues that happen in it, not all of them, but Many of them start in childhood um, with my kind of public health lens on that's where to intervene. And to intervene during that time stage, who better to do it than pediatricians? Oh, that is yeah. the natural preventative lens of exactly. pediatrics. Wow, Alice, that was incredible. Yeah, I agree. It clarified so many things and it made me rethink the way that a peds resident could structure their career and really think critically about the impact that you have and the research questions that you ask and sort of Uh what you can accomplish during residency to get there, what you can look for in a fellowship or advanced training program specifically. I thought that it really, it shed light on so much if this is your goal. Yeah, 100%. I think she gave us some great perspective there. I think that when you're in residency, there is a sense that everything that's going to happen for your training has to happen in those three years. And it can feel Mm -hmm. like, where is the time to do the research of my dreams and also get all the clinical exposure that I need to get to be a good doctor. And I think she just points out how, you know, it can't 
necessarily all happen together and that the purpose mm-hmm. of residency just figuring out, you know, at least what you like and what kind of questions you might be wanting to ask later on in your career. I also just love the idea that she, you know, pointed out that your experience or exposure to a subspecialty is so limited by the window that you see. And, mm-hmm. and in her case, you know, she didn't even have any exposure to that subspecialty in residency. And so just highlighting the importance of elective opportunities, opportunities after residency, if you're going to work that, you know, there's so many ways that your career can have twists and turns and get you where you want to be. It was just like absolutely inspiring to hear from her. I couldn't agree more. As always, we would love to hear from you guys. This is such a, um, I think, rich and complex topic as to like how you've incorporated research into your careers. Uh, Any more questions that you have, we are literally waiting. (laughs) by all all forms of social media you know how to get to us at this point instagram twitter email we're here we're happening we're waiting for a refreshing really <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right we will see you next time yeah, see you next time <laughs>